Hello and welcome to the Faber Podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is Marcel Theroux, whose new novel, Strange Bodies, has recently been published. Kate Saunders wrote in The Times that this is a superb technological fantasy, a tense thriller, and a brilliantly imagined debate about the relationship between body and soul. And Justine Jordan in The Guardian called the book moving as well as thought-provoking, as elegiac as it is gripping. Strange Bodies is Nicholas Slopin's account of the last few months of his life, an alarming tale found by a former girlfriend on a memory stick after his death. Slopin, in his late thirties, once seemed to have a glittering academic career ahead of him, and long adopted a pose of an emotionally invulnerable intellectual. But despite acclaimed work on Samuel Johnson's letters, his career has stalled and his marriage is on the skids. Into his life comes Hunter Gould, an eccentric music industry mogul, who wants Slopin's opinion on the authenticity of a cache of previously unknown letters, apparently by Johnson. To Slopin, the letters seem both convincingly real and blatant forgeries. Fakes in their amateurish fabrication, but real in their emotional content. They are just the first impossible, baffling encounter Slopin will have, as he's drawn deeper into the world of Gould's associates from the former Soviet Union, and their project to achieve immortality through a terrifying intervention known as the Procedure. Marcel Theroux provides three epigraphs to his novel, a line in Latin from Ovid's Metamorphoses, and two different translations of it. The second of these, from Ted Hughes, reads, Now I am ready to tell how bodies are changed into different bodies. When I met Marcel at home in South London recently, I began by remarking that this page, even before the novel begins, seemed to me to contain its essence. Uh, that You're right, and uh, actually no, no one's pointed that out before, but I was playing on the idea of translation. I think I was remembering that line in Midsummer Night's Dream where the character says, Oh, bottom, thou art translated. Not meaning that thou art in a different language, but that, that bottom, you now you now have a donkey's head. Yes, that's right. The, the, it's the same line of Ovid, but in different uh, iterations. And something is altered subtly in each one. And that's a something that happens in the book, that Nicky Slopen, the protagonist, is translated in the book into another body. And I suppose one of the questions I'm asking is, to what extent is he more or less Nicky Slopen than he was before? And those translations make that point subtly but, but nicely, don't they? Because they are, in a sense, copies with modification. That's exactly right. They're copies with modification. And you wonder, what, is there an essence that remains or are they utterly different from one another? And what, It's a question that uh, I don't think you can ever answer. And uh, the controversy about what, how one ought to translate a language is is one that <laughs> well, is one that I'm sure will persist, but the question of what of a human being uh, remains if their consciousness is moved into another vessel, maybe that's one that will be more pertinent as technology advances. As we try to to decode what we are, as we understand more and more about consciousness, and try to understand what our essence is, or as we greedily try to preserve our consciousness in the face of death which is i think would i think would be the it would be the motive in dabbling with that kind of technological necromancy that motive would then in turn become part of a, a commercial enterprise and that's that's something which in the book is 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 present in in the background that the desire for immortality is attached to the desire to make profit from those who seek it 
Well, I think, as with all technology, technology is neither a good thing or a bad thing. It increases uh, human potential. Human potential also includes the capacity to do very, very cruel things. And as with most technology, the rich get more and better versions of it. It's not a huge part of the book, but I was exploring the idea that uh, if there was a putative technology that allowed people to project their consciousness beyond their natural lifespan, who's going to benefit in the first place? The book begins with someone returning ostensibly from the dead, which is a great narrative trope, isn't it? Someone who has been away and everyone thinks he's gone for good returns. It's a very rich idea. And I I was thinking a little bit about the return of Martin Guerre, which is based on a true a true story in 15th century France of a of a man who who came back after a war, long after he was thought to be dead, and uh, turned up at his wife's house and resumed his relationship with her. And then, as it happened, it turned out that he he wasn't actually the same person who'd left. I think the idea of coming back from the dead is a, you know, I think mythically it speaks to our deepest hope that we won't have to leave. And even just reading the newspaper yesterday about these poor women who found in the basement of this house in Cleveland, that there's something uh, that, that I think also speaks to a, a powerful mythic sense of resurrection, of being Orpheus and actually getting to return from that underworld and all the hope that that entails. But at the same time, there's also some darkness about it because when you come back from that chthonic place was when you use the word chthonic in a sentence i finally got to when you come back from that underworld place some of the underworld still adheres to you and uh, i don't know if you know the story of the monkey's paw but when the the couple when they the couple are granted the wish to resurrect their son from the dead there's something that's such a deeply felt wish but it's also it goes against everything we know to be in the natural order of things, and it's it's not a resurrection that can ever finally happen. And often in those who have been bereaved, there is a strong desire to believe the person who has come back, even against evidence. I saw a documentary last year about a, a petty criminal who was French who decided to impersonate a, a boy who had disappeared in, in the United States, and he, the family seemed to, seemed to go along with that to quite, a, to quite a good degree. That's not the experience that Nicholas Slopen has when he returns. No, no. He, the problem he has when he comes back is that he, no one believes him. His uh, contention, which is that he's the consciousness of Nicholas Slopen in a different carcass, is very close to a psychotic delusion. I don't know if you can call a psychotic delusion traditional, but it's it's a it's a I think a, a fairly frequently occurring psychotic fantasy that you you're in someone else's body. So of course he's disbelieved and uh, he ends up in a in a loony bin. Uh, from where he is trying to explain the how, the what, and the why of this transformation, and so that's the and, and that's essentially the the form that the bulk of the novel takes. And before his ostensible death, he had been a literary scholar, and his specialist subject had been Samuel Johnson, right. and that that it seemed to me was was far from a, an adventitious choice yeah. on your part. That's right. He's uh, Nicholas Lopin is a scholar of Samuel Johnson. Samuel Johnson is someone who I'm, who I've always been interested in. Uh, 
He's, he's a fascinating character. He's one of those literary personalities who people feel that they have a relationship with. He also happened to write a dictionary, which is uh, convenient for uh, reasons that emerge as the, as the novel unfolds. He also used to visit southwest London. Uh, it wasn't southwest London in those days. It was a tiny little village on the, <laughs> in the countryside outside London. But he used to come and stay at Stratton Place uh, with Mrs. Thrale and her husband, Henry Thrale, which is round the corner from, from where we're sitting now. I always liked the oddness of what uh, SW17 looks like now and what it might have looked like to Samuel Johnson. I enjoyed those, that paradox. One of the seeds of the book is when I was at, at graduate school, having a miserable time, I enjoyed reading biographies of Samuel Johnson. I don't know why, because I was studying international relations, so it wasn't that good a thing to be reading. But I had this fancy that Samuel Johnson came to stay with me in New Haven, Connecticut, where I was studying and we went to the movies together and I took him out for pizza and I used to I liked the idea of seeing uh, 20th century American town through his eyes and it was a funny kind of fish out of water fantasy that amused me a little bit of that old fantasy is, is inside the book but it actually over the years it changed to, to something a bit deeper and darker than what I used to think about in those days on one hand, he is a, a creature of rationalism, but at the same time, he, he has the black dogs of, of depression on his, his tail much of the time. And I think that's why he's a character who is so heartening to read, because for some reason he had this seems to have had this kind of free-floating sense of guilt and remorse about his life. You know, I think life is hard. I think life is hard and difficult and we die. And th- those are all horrible those are all painful truths and i am always encouraged by the people who are able to grapple with those truths honestly without sugaring them and yet they make a life and carry on and i always think that that example is quite heartening to me and and i think by simply the existence of those people or the companionship of those people is a kind of solace to all of us the way in which they grapple at least posthumously the way in which we can perceive it is through language. And language really is central to this book. That's right. And one the other epigraph to the book uh, that's important is that are those lines from Areopagitica by Milton, where he says, books are not absolutely dead things, but do contain as in a vial the purest efficacy of the living soul that bred them. So what Milton's saying is that books are a vessel or a kind of flask of a someone's consciousness and I have al- I've always treasured that quote because it seems to capture something about the mystical aspect of reading that seems true to me which is that when you read a book your consciousness does come into a kind of communion with someone else's consciousness and that consciousness for the period that you're reading the book it comes to inhabit yours and afterwards I think a little bit of it remains with you you become impregnated by it and Ultimately, that's one of the reasons I read, and that's one of the reasons I take solace from reading, is that you're able to communicate across time with these wonderful consciousnesses. And I think this is probably only true of the greatest writing. I don't think that if you read the yellow pages, you know, that consciousness that comes to inhabit yours. Although, you know, it would be interesting to think about, you know, if a really, really kind of rubbishy or insane consciousness can come, come to inhabit yours. But I, I was more interested in the, the kind of the well the, of the 
the most uh, fully achieved literary consciousness. And we know, and Johnson's an example because not only do we have his extant writings, but we've got people who wrote about him and we've got the dictionary. And I was wondering, could you distill that into an essence that's reproducible? It was really interesting, I thought, that after Nicholas Lowe, he has a sort of crisis of academic confidence. He kind of loses his faith yes. in in his powers uh, as a scholar or his even his belief in, in the great books. And when it begins to return a little bit, it is literally by taking books off a shelf in a in a in a furniture store, <laughs> yes. and somehow sometimes the spark is sort of yeah, is re- right. reignited. Yes, that's right. That's right. He d- that's that's true. You know, it is true. I think sometimes if you feel really depressed, the reading won't do it for you. Uh, I think if you're really really blue, uh, you you're too blue to read and take pleasure in the act of reading. But I think when you've uh, if you can get over that hump, I, th- I think just the, the act of communicating or opening your heart to another consciousness, even if it's words on a page, it, it, I think that's then you know the healing's begun, and I think you can you can become stronger and happier simply to, simply through reading. And we know from uh, psychology, I think it's uh, from a fellow, fellow called Martin Seligman that you the, the act of writing of setting your own consciousness down on a piece of paper. Even if there's no intended reader, it is tremendously beneficial for your mental health. It seemed to me in the book that books embodied that positive power of language's capacity to connect and to preserve. And the negative side of it was embodied by the project to achieve immortality. Although they were both using language, they had very different moral values, I suppose. I suppose you're right. There are people who are trying to use this capacity that words have for, for, for projecting a consciousness beyond a person's lifespan. And the way I see it, they're, they're using it in a, in a completely instrumental way. It's a very literal-minded kind of Im- immortality. I do think that nothing good could come of that. It's based on seeing a person as a, as a data dump, really, isn't it? Or a, or a download, rather than as a network of, of connections and relationships, which might be con- constituted and, and enhanced through language, but, but are not reducible to that data. That's right. And because even the question of what you are, or what I am, is a, is a vexed one. It's a very reductive view of a personality to think that you could do a data dump and somehow copy the contents of a person's consciousness like it's a hard drive because it's not even clear that we remain the same from minute to minute to me Uh, and we certainly over a lifetime our bodies change or sometimes beyond recognition and yet there is of course there is continuity in it but I invented a procedure and then I proceed to to say why it's not a very sensible thing to do but I, I do think that there are people who are there. There right now. There are. There's a fellow called Ray Kurzweil who is hoping to prolong his life to the point where he's alive when this singularity occurs, which will allow him to upload the contents of his cranium onto a memory stick or the internet or whatever. And so there are people who have this literal, literal-minded view of immortality. And there's a Russian, really is uh, was a Russian philosopher called Nikolai Fyodorov, who believed that mankind's ultimate destiny was to achieve the resurrection of all the generations that have lived and to for us all to project ourselves into a future that would have to take place on other planets by the way because the earth simply wouldn't be big enough as he acknowledged in his writings for all these people and you know there is something appealing about that because immortality is is promised to us in various ways by various religions but 
it, it's all metaphorical immortality. We're wearing white robes and we're in another place playing harps. And actually the immortality you really want is to be, you know, with your kids forever and your friends and and to be for things not to change. But that's just a fantasy. We can't, you know, that could that could never be despite what Fyodorov thinks, despite what Kurzweil thinks. And yet humans mistaking fantasy for reality or seeking to achieve on earth things that have no place on earth is the root of much of the misery of the 20th and the 21st century. And as you say, you invented a procedure, but the impulse, this sort of utopian impulse for immortality was one of the, the, the weirder fringes of early 20th century Russian science, wasn't it? That's right. The, 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 the God building. Could tell, tell me a little bit about that. The communism that finally emerged triumphant after 1917, well, properly, I should say, one, one would say after the 1920s, uh, was a sort of bias towards technology and heavy industry and a very practical form of uh, economic idealism. But in the early years of communism, and of, as it was kind of, there was Russia was this kind of melting pot of these quite loopy ideas, which you might argue of which communism was just one. And uh, there was a, a tendency in Russian philosophy, uh, represented by this fellow Nikolai Fyodorov, but not restricted to him, which saw the aim of uh, human progress to be the perfection of human beings, to make us better morally better, but also biologically better. So immune from diseases and ultimately immune from death. And you can see this to a certain extent. If you ever, if you go to Red Square and you go visit the Lenin mausoleum, you will see Vladimir Ilyich, or what remains of him, looking very waxy, dressed in a, in a pristine black suit. And that, uh, the, the preservation of his body was actually undertaken by people by by a group of people some of whom were connected to Fyodorov who were interested in uh, experiments in immortality that were carried out in the 1920s all of which needless to say failed and they were given the task of preserving Lenin's body it's of course they it was a much more mundane endeavor formaldehyde and uh, a lot of makeup you know rather than uh, <laughs> it's true immortality but it, it was always fascinating to me that there, there were these, these were ideas that were in the ether. These are things that people actually took seriously. Tolstoy was a big fan of Fyodorov. Lenin's uh, sister was one of the people who injected herself with blood. Uh, carried out, they carried out blood transfusions in the hope of somehow prolonging their own lives. And, you know, it seems crazy, but around the world right now, there are people on highly restricted calorie-controlled diets because there's some evidence that if you can get your metabolism to survive on tiny amounts of food <laughs> well at least it's true of fruit flies so you know by extension people think it might be true of human beings you'll be able to live you'll be, you're able to become a, um, a mega centenarian you'd live to be 120 130 or, or at least long enough for technolo technology to catch up with your desire to live forever what kind of quality of life you'll be having if you're <laughs> I mean, it's anyone's guess. But th this is an obstinate human desire and it will never go away. People will always want to live forever and technologies will at some stage be able to grant them not the ability to live forever, but the idea of prolonging their life in some weird, weird and no doubt with with repercussions that will be unforeseen and almost certainly 
malign. As you were saying earlier, it just changes shape, doesn't it? The, the early 20th century version was kind of injections and, and gristle, and the 21st century version of it is the data on the, on the, right. on the memory stick. That's right. But your book imagines that the Russians and the Americans are actually collaborating <laughs> on this. So that it's got to the stage where they, they see such commercial potential. That's that right. There's actually a joint venture of taking this Soviet idea and extending it. Uh, that's true. You know, in a way, I don't want to say too much about it. Like, I don't want to give people the idea that the book's a kind of conspiracy thriller because it, it, what it's really about, it's about Nicholas's ordeal. It's about his struggle for people to believe in his story. And it's about the relationship between Nicholas... Mark 1 and Mark 2, as it were. Because for me, a big idea in the book is authenticity. And that Nicholas initially is asked to authenticate these letters, old letters written by Samuel Johnson. But the book, I think, is asking a bigger question about when am I really me? What is the real me? What is the life that is really mine? And when am I living it? When am I most authentically myself? And to a certain extent, Nicky doesn't, really become himself until he becomes someone else. I mean, you, you, you quote from Baudelaire uh, yes. at one point, yes. um, mon semblable, yeah. mon frère. And yeah. it seemed to me semblable is not identical. What, what is right. the essence of semblable is it is, a, it is a close resemblance, but it's not identity. And the, the book explores that, as you say, through the idea of authenticity. Yes, that's true. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. But I think one of the questions is, you know, in the end, I'm not finally sure that they are the same person. And that uh, the, the 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 narrator of the books had experiences that are not available to Nicky, his progenitor, and and so you do wonder ultimately what what is this? What is the? Do, I, I don't believe they do have exact identity, but as I've said, I'm not sure that I even have identity. What we do know is that we're individuals. I mean, that we are literally indivisible. We are we are we because we inhabit a single biological entity. But whether our consciousness remains the same from minute to minute or year to year, I think is a more doubtful question. And it's questionable too, I guess, whether someone like Nikki would ever have found that stable sense of self, which his wife, Leonora, does. She says at one point, she says to him, I am the person I was supposed to be. And I guess some people have that or claim it and other people never find it we'll never know will we because we'll never have the chance to you never have the chance to inhabit someone else's body the closest i think you ever get to stepping in someone's shoes is 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 through a book and that's the closest you can get to inhabiting someone else's consciousness or having someone's consciousness inside you and my feeling is that what my uh, the evidence i've gleaned from the reading i've done over the years is that people are more confused and puzzled and full of doubts and struggles than we generally credit. And it, it supports a, a truism that people say in 12 step, which is that you should never compare, you should never compare your insides with other people's outsides. Now, one word that this book introduced me to, which I think I will remember for the rest of my life, is mancourt. <laughs> Tell me a bit about this. Mancourt is a Kyrgyz word. And I came across it in this book called The Day Last More Than a Thousand Years by Chinggis Atmaitov. And in that, it's a it's a legend. A mankurt is someone who's been captured by his enemies on the Kyrgyz steppe. He's had his, his scalp shaved and a camel's had it attached to his scalp. And the process uh, turns turns him or she, I, I think it's a, a gender neutral procedure, 
turns you into a golem. It's a kind. It's, it's very close to the golem myth. It's someone who's had his uh, someone who's had their autonomy taken away and turned into a kind of passive, robotic creature. I think the word is used sometimes to to talk about the Soviet suppression of Central Asian culture. That a man Kurt is someone who's forgotten their own their cultural identity. But in the book, I, it's a, it's a it's a legend I explore in a more literal minded way. It's a way of talking about. Uh, this the kind of golem that uh, is is produced by this uh, this procedure. I think for a something of this kind to to pull it off, you you kind of do need a word. I think it's interesting. I think it's instructive that people use the word Frankenstein, which should be Doctor Frankenstein, to describe the creature that Frankenstein created. Because Frankenstein is such a is such a great mouthful. And it attached itself to his creature, and the same is true of the the, the word Dracula, isn't it? That it's a it's a word that has this this resonance. I'm sure you you could multiply that with many many further examples. But so I think I needed a word that described what was produced that wasn't fully human that was produced by the uh, Malievin procedure. And it's an excellent word. I mean, it's got it's got a really good sound to it. And it's got by by accident. It's got man at this other. That's right. We're not too. etymologically yes. connected to man. Yes. I mean, you you mentioned Frankenstein Marcel, and I guess it, it it's it, it's impossible for him not to have been in your thoughts as you as you wrote this book. You know, preoccupation with the dangers of science and a, a creature who's acquiring language and and sure. trying to be accepted. I did think about it, and it was a book I read a long, long time ago, and was very moved by. And I, you know, it does have some, uh, it does have some relationship to that book. But I think ma- mainly because it's a, I, I think that on a on a mythic level, the strange bodies and Frankenstein are drawing on the same, same Promethean myth of the humanity meddling with the source of life. I think that's the identity it has. But I was also thinking about. That George Eliot lifted veil, which was also an inspiration for the for the book. And and George Eliot's not traditionally thought of as a author of speculative fiction, but then I think in the nineteenth century there were less hard and fast distinctions about genre, and writers were freer to transgress because the boundaries didn't exist. Lucky them. <laughs> Lest we give the impression that this is only a novel about scientific ideas. It's also a novel about a, a middle-aged man dealing with the, the frustrations of career and marriage and children and, and ageing at the same time. And there, there, there are sort of moments of humour where he, he, he compared himself to a character in a William Trevor story. Yeah. So it's, that's like, a, again, it's like a sort of parallel track that down, down which his story doesn't go. That's, well, I think it's, you know, there's this Borges story called the Aleph where a guy has a, um, there's an object which is somehow contains in microcosm the entire world. And it's, it's an extraordinary object. One of the reasons the story is so fantastic is that the object exists in the underneath the stairs of a house in a suburb of Buenos Aires, i.e. in the most mundane place imaginable. And I like the idea of an extraordinary thing that's profoundly rooted in the in mundane detail in ordinary life, which is after all where all our it's where all the kind of beauty and magnificence of our own lives really is. Is it? I I I, I think. I, I think we don't praise enough ordinary life. And you can believe that from the point of view of a man, Kurt, ordinary life looks pretty spectacular and wonderful. But at the same time, Nikki 
sees elements of that man Kurt existence in in ordinary middle aged <laughs> middle class life. I, mean, I don't know how, how how seriously he intends that, but but that's sort of slightly deadening. And at one point, the um the, the first narrator who encounters him when he comes back compares all middle aged men to sort of to robots. That's right. Well, it, you know, I think that's a bit hard. You know, that's a bit harsh. But that, what what she says she's about had she's had a bad experience. She had yeah, she's been left by her husband, but. I mean, I think it, it's related to this idea of authenticity, which is what people, one of the many reasons people go and see counsellors and therapists is that people sometimes arrive at a moment in their life when they think, how did I get myself here? What, what is this my life mine? Is this the life I was supposed to lead? How did I, on earth did it turn out like this? One moment I was seven years old, full of energy and, and just gobsmacked by the wonder and potential of my own existence. And now suddenly this has happened to me. And I don't think that's an uncommon human experience. I think the question is, how do I, how do I become me again? Part of that is done through language, I guess. One of the, A really beautiful image, which I shall remember from the book is that of the camera without a lens which is flooded with light and Malevin the the scientist whom Nikki goes to visit in uh, Russia uses that as an image of the human consciousness before in the pre-verbal state yes yes Uh, I'm very attracted to the mystics and I was thinking about uh, Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman and the strange I don't know if strange is even the right word but the notion of a uh, you're dissolving the boundaries between us and the world, and the, to some, <laughs> I'm going to sound loop. You're going to have to lock me up in the Maudsley after this, but <laughs> that we are that that, that that perhaps there is a state where we're less restricted to our, our single ego than than we can. We are perhaps bigger and contain more possibilities of empathy than one could even imagine. And, and I, I'm hinting at that. And in the end, that's not an experience. It's an, it's an ineffable experience. I, it's not an experience that you can put into words. But I think various mystics and poets have tried. And, and I do think that in poetry, in the best poetry, somehow hints at this state and what it might feel like. It's probably close to madness as well. And probably some of the poets who've expressed it best. I'm thinking of Christopher Smart, for some reason, also spent some time <laughs> incarcerated. But it's an interesting and it's an interesting area. And, it, and it's one that I'm attracted to. Because we have human, as humans depend on language in order to encode memory, it, it, it eludes memory, doesn't it? It eludes memory and it eludes, it eludes description. But that's the wonderful thing. Then you, if you read Leaves of Grass, you do feel like he's you do feel lifted into another state if you read if you read it in the right frame of mind. It's no, no good reading if you're in a bad mood. I mean, there, there, there's something going on in in, in there, there that uh, seems rich to me. Marcel Theroux. His latest novel, Strange Bodies, is out now in hardback. For more information about it and his other books, visit faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme. You can make sure you never miss the podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.